Well, thanks for coming, everyone, and thanks to Kirby for that discreet uh, invitation. So I'd like to start with an excerpt from We Pointed Them North by Teddy Blue Abbott. He says, I heard a story once about a school teacher who asked one of these old Texas cow dogs about how he punched cows on the trail. She said, oh, Mr. So-and-so, didn't the boys used to have a lot of fun riding their ponies? He said, Madam, there wasn't any boys or ponies. <laughs> they was all horses and men. Well, they had to be to stand the life they led. Look at the chances they took and the kind of riding they'd done all the time over rough country. Even in the daytime, those deep coolies could open up all at once in front of you before you had a chance to see where you were going. And at night, it was something awful, if you'd stopped to think about it, which none of us ever done. If a storm come up and the cattle started running, you'd hear that low rumbling noise along the ground, and the man on herd wouldn't need to come in and tell you, you'd know. And you'd jump for your horse and get out there in the lead, trying to get them into a mill before they scattered to hell and gone. It was riding at a dead run in the dark, with cut banks and prairie dog holes all around you, not knowing if the next jump would land you in a shallow grave. Well, that's pretty stirring stuff. It's uh, even more stirring when you consider that this passage is not from a Western novel, but was written by a man who had actually ridden in a nighttime stampede. We pointed them north. Recollections of a Cowpuncher, first published in 1939, is the only book-length narrative ever in print by a veteran of an 1880s Texas to Montana cattle drive. Author E.C. Teddy Blue Abbott vividly describes his trail herding experiences, complete with perilous river crossings, stampedes with killer lightning, and singing cowboys. He tells us the only two things a cowpuncher was afraid of. Okay, who wants to guess? Anybody? Well, what he says is uh, uh, being set afoot and an honest woman. <laughs> <laughs> and, and here's another one that Teddy Blue mentions. He says, uh, he tells us the only two pieces of cowboy equipment that remained the same from the 1870s until the 1830s. Anybody want to have a go at this one? Boots and cigarettes. Abbott describes the open range system with its roundups and rustlers and how overstocking the range in the terrible winter of 1886-1887 spelled the beginning of the end of the open range. Teddy Blue knew many notable people in Montana history. He met Charlie Russell in 1886 at the Judith Basin Roundup. They were friends until Russell's death 40 years later even planning to produce a book together which Teddy Blue would have written and Russell would have illustrated. He was a drinking buddy of Calamity Jane. <laughs> and and you, you may notice that they have uh, swapped hats. <laughs> he rubbed shoulders with Teddy Roosevelt and with Buffalo Bill Cody. He even knew a couple of fellows who were there when Liver Eaton Johnson carried out a grisly cannibalistic display after a skirmish with the Sioux at the mouth of the Muscle Shell. 
Abbott's friends told, told him that Livering Johnson just pretended to eat that liver. <laughs> Ted Abbott was Granville Stewart's son-in-law, having married his beautiful half-Shoshone daughter, Mary. Because Granville Stewart, along with his brother James, was the first man to systematically prospect for gold in Montana, that was in 1858 at what's now Gold Creek, and because of uh, Stewart's pioneering of the cattle industry, Abbott says of Stewart, Granville Stewart was the history of Montana. Abbott describes in detail Stewart's roundup and execution of rustlers in the summer of 1884 in the breaks along the Missouri River in north central Montana. Yes, Ted Abbott knew some interesting people and witnessed history in the making. But we pointed them north also covers some more racy subjects. Abbott tells us, in a discreet way, just what went on in Cowtown saloons and in Mag Burns' parlor house in Miles City. Teddy Blue's book has shaped today's conception of authentic 19th century cowboy life by serving as an important eyewitness source for Larry McMurtry's Pulitzer Prize winning novel, Lonesome Dove, and for Ken Burns' television production, The West. Edward Charles Abbott was born December 17, 1860, in Crownage Hall, County of Norfolk, England, to James B. and Anne Abbott. James Abbott was the younger son of Gentry, and, as often was the case with many younger sons who didn't stand to inherit land, he immigrated to the United States. In 1871, when Ted was 10 years old, the Abbots settled near Denton, Nebraska, 10 miles southwest of Lincoln. Well, one of the first things James Abbott did in the United States was to go to Texas and buy a herd of cattle to be trailed back to Nebraska. At some point, it was decided that Ted would accompany the cattle on the drive back to Nebraska in order to tend the horses. So his father went home to Nebraska without him, and ten-year-old ten Ted Abbott made his first cattle drive as a horse wrangler. Until Ted went out for his, on his own for good in the fall of 1878, he led a tumultuous life at home. He often had conflict with his father, and he took to visiting the Texas cowhands that were attending herds nearby. While still in his teens, he was earning a man's wages for tending other people's cattle on the range near Denton. At age 16, by his own account, he was drinking, smoking, carrying a gun, visiting sporting houses, and was an infidel. At age 17, he finally left home for good in the middle of the night after his father ordered him to plow a field. Over the next few years, Abbott took jobs with a number of cow outfits and drove Texas cattle to the Pine Ridge Reservation in Dakota Territory, to the Loop River in western Nebraska, and to Ogallala, Nebraska. He worked cattle the summer of 1882 in Nebraska, then joined the FUF outfit in Texas. The FUF started a cattle drive from the brush country of central Texas on April 10, 1883, and turned their cattle loose in October of that year in eastern Montana, near Forsyth. For the rest of his life, almost 56 years, 
Teddy Blue Abbott lived in Montana. In the winter of 1885, Teddy Blue was at the mouth of the Muscle Shell working for the Niobrara Cattle Company, the N-Bar outfit, when he heard from a passing cowboy of the beautiful single young women at the DHS ranch 75 miles away. They were the daughters of foreman and part owner Granville Stewart. In the spring of 1885, Teddy Blue was fired from the N-Bar for digging post holes so shallow they could not be found. And he went to work for the DHS. <laughs> On September 29, 1889, Tab Abbott married 19-year-old Mary Stewart. They took up a ranch near Gilt Edge, 16 miles east of Lewistown, where they raised eight children to adulthood. Eventually, the Three Deuce Ranch took in as much as 2,000 acres, and the Abbots lived there until Teddy Blue died in 1939. It's not possible to fully trace the development of Teddy Blue's dry and wry writing style because his papers from before 1886 were destroyed, burnt up, he says. The earliest writings in the Montana Historical Society Archives E.C. Abbott collection are some diaries and letters from the late 1880s. In, May, in a May 13, 1887 diary entry, Self-professed infidel, Teddy Blue listed a number of Bible chapters, and then he wrote, Whoever says that the above 11 chapters of the most holy Bible are fit for young people to read is both a fool and a liar and is not a fit associate for man or beast. E.C. Abbott. P.S. Of all the filthy trash I ever read, the most, the most above chapters take the cake. It has no equal in any immoral work I ever read, and I have seen quite a number. <laughs> On October 24, 1887, he wrote in his diary, Sat by the stove and shot mice as they ran over the table. So far, have shot eight times and killed four mice. Consider that good pistol practice, but hard on the table. Well, apparently Ted Abbott's sense of humor was already well-developed when he was still in his 20s. Although he claimed to have had only two winters of formal schooling, by the late 1880s he was a voracious reader, often reading a book a day during times of inactivity in the winter. He also regularly corresponded with a large number of people. By the late 19-teens, Teddy Blue was widely recognized in Montana as a genuine old-timer who'd come up the Texas Trail and was knowledgeable about pioneer times. He was frequently in the company of Charlie Russell and Russell's friend, Bill Rance, and articles about him and by him appeared in Montana newspapers. By 1920, Teddy Blue had produced a manuscript he called his History of the Range, He'd corresponded with other cattle drive veterans from Texas to Alberta and had collected a number of books and clippings about Montana and Western history, which he used to research his manuscript. Also, at the request of his friend, Charlie Russell, he'd written a story based on his experiences in New Mexico in 1880. It was about a cowboy who helped a nun and a priest and uh, a beautiful girl to escape from marauding Indians. It was called, You Pray and I'll Shoot. 
And it was originally intended to serve as the basis for a movie. In the mid-1930s, Teddy Blue wrote to several established Montana and out-of-state writers seeking help in getting his History of the Range published, but nothing came of these efforts. The Three Deuce Ranch had fallen on hard times in the 20s, and apparently he hoped that publishing a book would bring in much-needed cash. In the late summer of 1937, his luck changed. Miss Henry Pringle of New York City, pen name Helena Huntington Smith, was in Montana researching material for her planned historical novel, The Centaurs, which was to be the story of a cattle drive from South Texas to Montana. She was particularly interested in Granville Stewart, and she learned from Oscar Mueller, a Lewistown lawyer and amateur historian, about Teddy Blue Abbott, who was, of course, Granville Stewart's son-in-law. Miss Smith visited with Ted and Mary Abbott at the Three Deuce Ranch for several days in the fall of 1937, and Teddy Blue gave her much valuable material for her book in progress. In February of 1938, Helena Huntington Smith made another visit to Gilt Edge to interview Teddy Blue for information to be used in The Centaurs. Midway through this visit, she realized that Teddy Blue's autobiography itself would make a wonderful book. Of course, Teddy Blue agreed, and so with the object of getting his memoirs published, they put in marathon interview sessions that February. Helena Huntington Smith returned to the Three Deuce Ranch in June of 1938 and again in August. Between visits, she and Teddy Blue kept up an intense correspondence with her asking questions about topics which needed clarification or expansion and him writing answers a page or two long in response to her questions. On key subjects like the Texas Trail, he wrote essays more than 10 pages long. Teddy Blue loaned Helena Huntington Smith several diaries and some other personal papers. She also used several published works for reference. In the end, Miss Smith put together the manuscript for We Pointed Them North from the interviews and the correspondence, and she even included two almost complete chapters from Teddy Blue's History of the Range manuscript. After some fussing with the maps, the manuscript was ready. Teddy Blue reviewed and approved the proofs, but before he could see his book released, he died suddenly following a short illness on April 7, 1939. We Pointed Them North was well received by the critics. The initial 2,500 copies produced by publisher Farrar and Reinhardt were quickly sold out, and the book has sold steadily ever since. In 1955, the copyright was reassigned to the University of Oklahoma Press, and in 1976, the press issued a paperback edition. The paperback has sold more than 35,000 copies in 40 years, and that's a, a lot of sales for a book of this kind. At the core of We Pointed Them North is Teddy Blue's description of driving cattle from Texas to Montana along the Texas Trail. Noted Texas historian and editor J. Frank Doby says that when the Texans were victorious in their 1836 revolt against Mexico, thousands of Spanish cattle were abandoned between the Nueces River and the Rio Grande 
When their Mexican owners withdrew from territory newly controlled by the Texas Republic, Teddy Blue says that 33, excuse me, that 30 years later, there were worlds of cattle in Texas after the Civil War. By the time the war was over, they was down to $4 a head when you could find a buyer. Here was all these cheap longhorn steers overrunning Texas. Here was the rest of the country crying for beef and no railroads to get them out. So they trailed them out across hundreds of miles of wild country that was thick with Indians. Probably the most famous Texas cattle trail, the Chisholm Trail, terminated at the railhead of the Kansas Pacific Railroad at Abilene in East Central Texas and was in use from 1867 until 1871. Ted Abbott's first cattle drive in 1870 went almost to Lincoln in extreme eastern Nebraska. But as the country was settled, the herds going north were routed farther and farther to the west, as it was difficult to herd cattle through areas that were fenced or planted in crops, and where the water holes were controlled by homesteaders who charged steep fees to allow herds to water. By the 1880s, the Texas Trail, or the Western Trail, were the general names given to the more western series of interconnected cattle trails running north out of Texas, and some of them going all the way to Montana or even into Alberta. Teddy Blue says of the early Texas cow out outfits, those first trail outfits in the 70s were sure tough. Work oxen were used instead of horses to pull the wagon. And if one played out, they could rope a steer and yoke him up. They had very little grub, and they usually run out of that and lived on straight beef. They had only three or four horses to the man, and mostly with sore backs. Because the old-time saddle eats both ways, the horse's back and the cowboy's pistol pocket. They had no tents, no tarps, and damn few slickers. And he goes on. In the early days in Texas, in the 60s, when they gathered their cattle, they used to pack what they needed on a horse and go out for weeks on a cow hunt, they called it then. That was before the name Roundup was invented and before they had anything so civilized as mess wagons. They used to brag that they could go any place a cow could and stand anything a horse could. J. Frank Doby says of the longhorn cattle the Texans herded, these cattle had heavy fore and light hind quarters, thick necks, large coarse heads, and unusually long sharp horns. They were light-bodied and very quick and agile on foot. They were products of a land where forage was not especially abundant. Hardiness, a fighting maternal instinct, and ability to thrive under primitive conditions were their chief recommendations. However he might appear, with his steel hooves, his long legs, his stag-like muscles, his thick skin, his mighty horns, the longhorn could walk the roughest ground, climb the highest hill, swim the widest river, fight the fiercest panther. He was the cow brute for his time. When Ted Abbott came to Montana with the FUF outfit in 1883, they herded their cattle from the vicinity of San Antonio, past Dallas, Dog Dodge City, Oglala, 
through western Nebraska and western South Dakota, through northeastern Wyoming and into Montana along Little Powder River. Teddy Blue says, in the 80s, conditions on the trail were a whole lot better than they were in the 70s. Someone had invented mess boxes to set up in the hind end of the wagon. They had four horse teams to pull it, lots of grub, and from six to eight horses for each man to ride. And the saddles had improved. When I was on the trail in 83, we didn't have hardly a sore-backed horse all the way up to Montana. And the trail bosses had got the handling of the herd down to a science. After some experience in the business, they found that about 2,000 head on an average was the best number in a herd. 11 men made the average crew with the trail herd. Two men in the lead were called the point men, and then as the herd strung out, there would be two men behind on the swing, two on the flank, and the two drag drivers in the rear. With the cook and the horse wrangler and the boss, that made 11. And Teddy Blue describes the art of turning a trail herd that is strung out for more than a mile. If you're going to turn to the right, the man on the right point will drop back, and the man on the left point will go ahead and start pushing them over. And the men behind can tell from their movements what they want to do. By watching and cutting the curve, you can save the drags two or three hundred miles. Well, I better back up and say two or three hundred yards. <laughs> it's the drags you have to protect. They are the weak and sore-footed cattle, and that's what counts in the management of a herd. There's quite an art, too, to watering a herd. You bring them up and spread them out along the bank with the lead cattle headed downstream. The leads get there first, and of course, they drink clear water. And as the drags keep coming in, they get clear water too, because they're upstream. All those trail bosses knew their business, and their business was to get their herd through in good shape. That was all they thought about. At the end of their 1883 drive, the FUF outfit turned their cattle loose on the open range south of Forsyth after a trip of five months and 1,500 miles. I'm going to talk about cattle. I hope none of you mind too much. The Texas Longhorns, which came in from the south, were not the only type of cattle on the Montana open range in the 1880s, as is sometimes believed. The cattle industry in the area that became Montana actually had its start at the end of the 1840s, beginning of the 1850s, when residents of western and southwestern valleys began trading with travelers in what is now southern Idaho, southwest Wyoming, and northeastern Utah, for their worn-out livestock. In this area, pioneers bound for Oregon, California, and Salt Lake traveled along essentially the same route, often called simply the Emigrant Road back then. These travelers are herded along with them high-quality English-American-type cattle, and these cattle were often footsore and in poor condition uh, after their long walk from the states. The early Montana stockmen purchased worn-out cattle, also horses and oxen, from the travelers on the Emigrant Road. They then herded them slowly north and rehabilitated them on the lush grasses and good water of the mountain valleys, which are today in western and southwestern Montana. 
the Beaverhead, Deer Lodge, and Bitterroot Valleys were especially well suited for this rehabilitation process. The next year, the nascent Montana cattlemen herded their rejuvenated cattle back to the emigrant road and traded them to the travelers on the road. The usual trade was one animal in good condition for two of the emigrants' jaded cattle, and the cycle of rehabilitation began again. By 1858, Johnny Grant, now think Grant Coors Ranch, Johnny Grant had a herd of more than 800 English-American type cattle in the Deer Lodge Valley, and there were other smaller herds of high-quality cattle scattered around western and southwestern Montana. The number of animals in these Montana herds continued to increase, as cattle just naturally will, for over a decade. But starting in 1862, a series of big gold strikes in southwestern Montana brought in thousands of beef-hungry miners, and these native cattle herds were rapidly depleted. During the Montana Gold Rush and later during the open range years, Montana cattlemen looked to the west for a source of high-quality stock. Both Teddy Blue and Granville Stewart said almost half of the cattle on the Montana range in the 1880s were of a type that originated in the Oregon country. These Oregon cattle were descended in part from Spanish longhorn cattle, which are commonly called California longhorns, which were first brought to the Oregon country from California in the late 18th century by the English. In Oregon, the California Longhorns had crossed with purebred Durham stock, which had also been brought in by the English inhabitants. More English-American cattle, including many shorthorns, similar to Durham's, were brought to Oregon by American settlers in the 1840s, and these cattle crossed with the Longhorn Durham cross cattle already in residence. The resulting hybrid of a hybrid strain of cattle had traits of both its Spanish and its English-American progenitors in that the animals produced excellent beef but were also extremely hardy. By the mid-19th century, there were large herds of these Oregon cattle in the open ranges east of the Cascade in what's now eastern Oregon and Washington and western Idaho. The first sizable herd of Oregon cattle to be driven into Montana was brought in by Conrad Coors in 1866 to provide beef for the teeming gold camps of southwest Montana. Fifteen years later, in the 1880s, following the removal of the Indians, the slaughter of the buffalo, and the arrival of the Northern Pacific Railroad, the Montana beef boom of the 1880s began on the eastern prairies. Many Montana ranchers brought in the beefier Oregon stock rather than those lanky Texas Longhorns. Montana stockmen, whether they ran Texas or Oregon cattle, were anxious to improve their stock by bringing in purebred English-American bulls and turning the animals loose on the open range to let nature take its course and grade up the herds. At first they brought in Durham's or Shorthorn's with Herefords and then Black Angus becoming favorites in later years. We see a few Black Angus even today. Now some ranchers also kept purebred herds in fenced pastures and most notably Conrad Coors at his home ranch in Deer Lodge. Well on an 1870 trip to Iowa, 
force had purchased a herd of 450 shorthorn cattle and had them shipped by rail to Ogden, Utah, and then driven north to the Deer Lodge Valley. And the cattle on this slide are all shorthorns. They're quite lovely cattle. By the mid-1880s, purebred Herefords were brought to the Montana Range, and in 1884, Conrad Kors took first prize at the Territorial Fair with his polled Black Angus bull. Everybody knows that polled means it naturally has no horns. Yeah. Granville Stewart says of the DHS Ranch in 1883, we had now increased our herd to 12,000 head of range cattle and we're buying thoroughbred bulls of shorthorn breed to grade them up. None of our cattle were Texas longhorns, all being a good grade of range stock from Idaho and Oregon. The same attributes which made the longhorns champion walkers, their long legs and light bodies, also limited their utility as beef animals. By the early years of the 20th century, the longhorns were more nearly extinct than the buffalo, according to J. Frank Doby. A few longhorns are kept today as curiosities, but of course, no fast food restaurant advertises 100% longhorn beef. <laughs> The boom years of the Montana open range cattle industry were from about 1880 through 1885. But by the end of the hot dry summer of 1886, the grass on most of the Montana ranges had been destroyed by harsh weather and prolonged overgrazing. The survival of the open range cattle through the winter depended on their being adequate, nutritious, cured grass under the snow so that they could rustle, That's to, that is to paw down through the snow to reach the cured grass. The dire situation was compounded by low cattle market prices, so that many stockmen decided to hold more animals over the winter, hoping for better prices next year, rather than shipping them to market after the fall beef roundup. The demand on the range was also increased by the presence of one million, ooh, sheep, and because of the dry summer, rain, range fires consume precious grass, often the very best. In September, the Helena Independent reported, it is doubtful if the total precipitation, snow, and rain has averaged two inches over the whole territory during the past 12 months. The consequence was a season of unprecedented heat and one marked by low streams and lack of irrigating water. All over the territory, the same cry has gone up. The grass on the ranges grew but slimly and cured before its time for a lack of moisture. Much depends upon the coming winter. When we pointed them north, Teddy Blue recalls what happened the fall and winter of 1886-87. He says, the summer had been very dry as white grass we had was eaten off before the first snow fell. In November, we had several snowstorms, and I saw the first white owls I have ever seen. The Indians said they were bad luck, heap snow coming, very cold. They sure hit it right. We had two weeks of ninth weather just before Christmas, but on Christmas Eve it started to storm and never really let up for 60 days. It got colder and colder. The latter part of January, it started a Chinook, just enough to melt the snow 
on top. But it turned cold, and on February 3rd and 4th, the worst blizzard I ever saw set in. The snow crusted, and it was hell without the heat. I wrote to Granville Stewart, that's the DHS foreman, telling him I thought the loss would not be over 10%. In 10 days, I know it was 75%. During the hard winter, Teddy Blue had worked riding the range north of the Missouri with Pike Landusky in a vain attempt to keep the DHS cattle off of the river ice where they were swallowed up by open air holes. Teddy Blue says, the cowpunchers worked like slaves to move them back in the hills, but as all the outfits cut their forces down every winter, they were shorthanded. Think of riding all day in a blinding snowstorm, the temperature 50 and 60 below zero, and no dinner. The horses' feet were cut and bleeding from the heavy crust, and the cattle had the hair and hide wore off their legs to their knees and hocks. It was surely hell to see big four-year-old steers just able to stagger along. When the Chinook finally arrived in early March, it was too late to save the open-range cattle. Coolies were filled with animals that had moved into them seeking shelter and had gone no farther. There they are. Barbed wire fences stretching across the paths of storm-drifting cattle proved to be death traps. The spring roundup of 1887 showed that the actual loss of cattle surpassed the most pessimistic estimates. Losses varied by region with authenticated cases of mortality of up to 90% on the Yellowstone. Conrad Coors believed the average loss on the prairies of the Eastern Territory was about 50%. In the sheltered Western Valleys, losses were much less. Different classes of animals survived at different rates. It was found that Texas steers that had spent several previous winters on the Montana open range had the best survival rate of all classes of cattle. The Oregon cattle had been brought in from an area that had cold winters, but there were many cows and calves which did not survive well. So overall, mortality among them was high. Granville Stewart estimated 66% loss for his herds, which were virtually all Oregon cattle. The purebred cattle that had been shipped in on the railroad and turned loose on the range were almost a total loss because of their tendency to hang around the ranch buildings waiting to be fed instead of rustlings for grass under the snow. And milk cows and bulls didn't survive well either. The hard winter spelled the beginning of the end of the open range. Teddy Blue says, fully 60% of the cattle were dead by March 15, 1887. That is why everything on the range dates from that winter. Well, fortunately, cowboy life was not all hard work and suffering. And we pointed them north, Teddy Blue says of himself, I never had time to gamble. I couldn't sit still long enough. I always had to be up talking, singing, drinking at the bar. I was so happy and full of life. I used to feel, when I got a little whiskey inside me, that I could jump 20 feet in the air. And of the cowpunchers, they didn't have any radio or other forms of entertainment, and they got a big kick out of little things. 
That was why I got such a reputation among them for singing and storytelling and all that foolishness. It might be a rainy night, and they would all be humped up around the campfire, feeling gloomy. And I'd come in, and I'd tell them some cock and bull story about my bad breaks at theaters or what I'd done or what I was going to do, and in a minute, I'd have them all laughing. Vito Cross, who was our boss coming up from the North Platte in 83, used to say I was worth $40 a month just to stick around camp. I never could keep still, you understand. I always had to be talking or singing or doing some fool thing. And the book details cowboy stunts, like how Ted Abbott became known as Teddy Blue. There was a theater in Miles City. Turner's Theater, it was called, and I went in there that night, and one of these box rustlers come up to me. You know, in that kind of theaters, they used to have curtain booths all running all around inside, and the box rustlers was what they called the girls that worked them. So this girl came up to me, and she had on a little skirt, like a circus girl, and tights that looked like she'd been melted and run into them. <laughs> and first she invited me upstairs to buy wine at $5 a bottle. I said nothing doing to that. And then she told me she had a room back there and invited me to go with her. Well, that sounded better to me, and I was going to go. But there was a dark hall that ran around behind the stage, and as she started along it, I remembered that I had $700 on me in my six-shooter belt. And I thought there might be some kind of deadfall back there. I was a wise guy. I'd heard those stories. So I turned around, and as I turned, my spur catched on a carpet, and I fell through a thin partition onto the stage. Well, I thought, if you're going before an audience, you've got to do something. So I grabbed a chair from a musician and straddled it and bucked it all around the stage, yelling, Whoa, Blue! Whoa, Blue! Which was a cowpuncher expression at that time. Before they even got me off the stage, it had started. The manager yelled, Hey, Blue, come out of there! And the audience was yelling with laughter, and they took it up. And when I went out of that theater that night, I was Blue. And Teddy Blue I have been for 56 years. <laughs> that We Pointed Them North is still in print more than 75 years after it was first published is evidence that it's still an enjoyable and informative book. If you want a good quote, open it to just about any page. But We Pointed Them North is not just a rollicking tale told by a crusty character. Several summers ago, I had the good fortune to visit with Daryl Abbott, Teddy Blue's grandson, at the old family home on the Three Deuce Ranch. And Daryl told me that when the subject of Teddy Blue was discussed, often someone would comment that he was a big liar. <laughs> and then Daryl said to me, but just what did he lie about? He didn't claim to be a big Indian fighter or a dangerous gunslinger. He didn't even like to ride wild horses. He said he was afraid of them. He thought a man could get hurt. In fact, Teddy Blue told Tel Helena Huntington Smith several times in his letters that his foremost concern in putting the book together was for telling the whole truth, no matter how personally embarrassing it might be, to provide an accurate and complete portrait of a way of life that was no more. As a unique and honest first-person account of the days of the Texas Trail and the open range, including the fun parts, 
We pointed them north is an important work. And on April 30th, 1939, New York Herald Tribune Review, esteemed American poet Stephen Vincent Benet wrote of We Pointed Them North. This is authentic history, not merely the stuff of which history is made. For there can be no better history than when one man tells with salty candor of the life he has lived and the things that have happened to him. Factually, the book is a mine and a storehouse of information on its period. But it is more than that, for first and last it is the story of a man, and one man's character sticks out all over it. If you want to know what the West was about in the great days of the 70s and 80s, you've got to read Teddy Blue. Thank you.